Turn in your Bibles to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 19. If you're here and you don't have a Bible, we have some black Bibles in front of you, um, in the chairs in front of you, and you're going to need these because I'm not going to say anything that could possibly compare to what God has to say in His Word. And what I want you to remember when we leave this morning is God's Word. And we're going to look at several passages. We're going to look in um, Luke chapter 19 at the passage we have. We're going to look in Exodus chapter 12. We're going to look at Psalm 119. We're going to look at all of the Scripture that just intertwines so beautifully in pointing to the person of Jesus Christ. And that's our goal. 2 Timothy 3.16. Um, every time I preach, I repeat this, so I hope you don't ever get tired of it. But all the scripture, Paul says, is inspired of God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That, whenever you see that in your Bible, if you're looking at the Bible, circle, circle it. It means purpose, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. These are not good works that merit favor with God. That's not what the good works he's talking about. These are the good works that are an outflow of joy of living in Christ, of who we are in Christ. And so we're not earning God's favor. That's not what God is equipping us for. He's equipping us to do what he designed us to do for the, from the very beginning before the fall of man. And it's, and it's the Holy Spirit that works through his word. So you need a Bible in front of you to do that. We're in, if you're visiting us with us, we're in um, the book of Luke. Luke says in chapter 1, he says that he writes all of these things so that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. The Christian faith is not a blind faith. If you want to know what a blind faith is, a blind faith would be something that says something comes from nothing. It's what our culture teaches to our kids in government schools. A blind faith is one that says, well, randomness produces precision, or that order comes from disorder, or that there is design without a designer. That's what blind faith looks like. But the Christian faith is an informed faith, and it's a faith in the very person of Jesus Christ. The Christian faith is not in a creed. It's not in a system of thought. It's not in a philosophy or any such thing. It's not even in a doctrinal statement. Those are all good. But it's in the person of Jesus Christ. The person whose life, his death, his resurrection are historical facts to which we have eyewitnesses. And Luke is the expert witness. He interviewed all the eyewitnesses and gives us his account in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus said in Luke 4, he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God in the other towns. So Christ was traveling from town to town, actually from synagogue to synagogue on the Sabbath days. But he says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. That's the purpose for which Christ was sent. And he was preaching, Luke says, in the synagogues of Judea. But first, but first, in order to secure the kingdom, Sin had to be dealt with because sin is what separates man from God and the holiness 
The holiness of God cannot tolerate sin. It cannot even tolerate the presence of sinners. It's in the person of Jesus Christ where we get that holiness and from him alone. So as we've been going through the book of Luke, it's the signs and miracles that Jesus performed that demonstrated his authority and authority over the universe. You remember this? Authority over the spirit world as he cast out demons. Authority over nature as he calmed the storms. Authority over sickness as he healed the blind. As he healed the deaf. As he healed the paralytic and the lame. And also authority over death as he raised people from the dead. Only the creator of the universe could have such command over his creation. And accompanied by these great miracles that he performed was forgiveness of sins. Remember in Luke 5? In Luke 5, he heals the paralytic. You know the story. It's a popular story. As, as, as he heals the paralytic, and the Pharisees object to Jesus saying to him, your sins are forgiven. But Jesus says, he says, well, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? I mean, anybody can say, your sins are forgiven. Any of us could say that to another person. But how hard it would be to say, get up and walk to a lame man. And Jesus proved that he had the authority to forgive sins by telling that man, rise up and walk. And he says, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise up, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately, Luke says, he rose up before them, picked up what he had been laying on, and he went home, glorifying God. Repeatedly, Jesus heals people, and he forgives sin. And he says, your faith has saved you. you know, Pat reminded us a couple of weeks ago when he was up here preaching from this pulpit. Um, he's, uh, as, he, um, from Luke 8, as he was preaching from Luke 8 on the blind man, he said, we're saved by grace alone, through the vehicle of faith alone, in the person of Jesus Christ alone. And only Jesus has the authority to forgive sins because he paid that price for our sins on the cross of Calvary. Jesus Christ is the object of our faith. So before we go and open up to Luke chapter 19, bow with me if you will, in a word of prayer. Father, as we come and as we open up your word, our heart's desire is for your Holy Spirit to speak through us. Um, I pray that your Spirit would teach us what we should know, that we would be encouraged. Where we need rebuke, may there be rebuke. May we, where we need encouragement, may there be encouragement. But train us and teach us through your word so that we might glorify you, glorify Jesus Christ in our deeds, the purpose for what you have made us. And so we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you're at Luke chapter 19, um, we're in the section of Scripture that's entitled The Triumphal Entry. Um, we're going to pick up with verse 28, and we're going to go to verse 44. So if you have a Bible, also, um, there are some notes on the back. Um, and one thing, I, one thing that I do is the preach team rotates through here, and as they're preaching, one thing I do is I take notes. And on Sunday evening, I'll sit down and I'll transcribe those notes onto my computer. It just helps me 
organize those and it gives me something to think about. And my encouragement to you would be this, this week, after, the, after this, this morning, would be some of the passages that we look at that you would go back and look at them um, together. But let's read um, from Luke 19, verses 28 through 44. And when he had said these things, this goes back to our message from last Sunday, um, as, as um, we looked at the parable of the ten minutes. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which one, on which one has never, ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And he rode along. They spread their cloaks on the road. And he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives. And the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praising God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that, that they had seen. Saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory to the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Jesus, or teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. And all four of the gospel writers um, write of this account of Jesus' triumphal entry. Uh, Matthew, in Matthew 21. Uh, I'm just turning there. You can. You don't have to. Matthew 21. The same gives the same account. Um, but towards the end, um, he says this, um, this. I'm sorry, I'm picking up in verse 8. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Here's my main point. Let me give you for taking notes. Here's the main point of the, of the message today. There is no peace without the cross. That's that simple. There is no peace Without the cross. An atonement by the sinless Son of God is the only means of reconciliation to God. There is no other remedy for sin. The brokenness of this world, uh, the brokenness of this world is a result of sin. Sin must be dealt with first. Man must be reconciled to God before man can live in peace with God and fellow man. 
Our faith and our hope is in the person of Jesus Christ as revealed in the whole of Genesis to Revelation. Our faith and our hope is not in a Messiah of our own making. And Israel was guilty of that. So who is Jesus Christ? As Matthew says, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? So if you're taking notes, I want to make seven observations. And then we're going to have just a couple of application points. Now, seven observations, that sounds like a lot, right? When you're preaching, you're supposed to just give like three points. We're we're not going to spend the same amount of time in all of these observations. So a couple observations, we'll spend a little time on others, we'll go through real quickly. Kim and I had the um, elementary um, age groups. We have the elementary age groups in our Sunday school class, which we do on Wednesday. And what a great class that is. Um, And boy, my hat is off to you dads and you moms with those kids. Dude, I love hearing them pray. If Luke Conti is praying for a request, hey Luke, if he's praying for a request for Peyton, where's Peyton? I saw Peyton over here too. She went back. When he, when he prays, he'll, Peyton, there's Peyton, here she comes. So if Luke Conti is, is praying for Peyton, he'll, she'll, uh, he'll say, thank you, Lord, for the Wolf family. We just love having Peyton in this class. And then he'll, and then he'll, and then he'll um, pray for that request. The other kids will say the, will, will say the same things. Brave will do the same thing. It's, it, they start their prayer off praying, thanking God for one another and being part of this body. And then they pray for their request. I don't think Kim and I are ever going to give up that class. That is the best class. So what were we talking about, guys, this week in that class? We were talking about a young man who fell out of a window, right? Remember what his name was, Bravery? No? Baptist, remember his name? No. Luke, you remember his name? No. Peyton, you know his name? What was his name? Eutychus, right? Was it Eutychus? Paul was preaching in Troas. They had, they had a meal, then Paul preached until midnight. Eutychus falls asleep. And apparently the way he was resting in the window, he was leaning back towards the room. He was leaning kind of out, right? And he falls three stories to his death. Paul resurrects him. And then guess what they do after that? They probably say, wow, we probably all need to go home this late. He teaches until the next morning. Now I'm not, I'm 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 not what I'm not surprised that Paul was preaching that Paul preached all through that evening and then resurrects Eutychus and then preaches all until the next morning. What I'm amazed at is that the people who were so eager to hear God's word were there with him and listening. So I promise I'm not going to take that much time that anybody's going to fall out of a window or fall out of your chair. I hope not. Um, but we're going to make seven observations. And then we're going to talk about um, some application. First observation. Here's the first observation. Jesus is going up to Jerusalem. His mission is ordained by God, including this very day, the triumphal entry, this very day of the presentation of the Lamb of God. All of Scripture points to the person of Jesus Christ. All of the Old Testament Scripture point to both Christ coming as the atoning Lamb of God and as the Lion of Judah. But the Jews had selective hearing. If you're a parent here, do you have children who have selective hearing? You have selective hearing. You know what I mean by selective hearing? They only hear certain things, right? If you look at, you read through the whole of the Old Testament, it points to the coming, the Lamb of God and the Lion of Judah. All they wanted was the Lion of Judah who was going to rescue them from Roman 
oppression. Remember in our text from a couple of weeks ago, uh, Matt Wolf was preaching on uh, Luke 18, 31 through 33. Jesus took the disciples aside and told them, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered up to the Gentiles. He will be, they will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. Fast forward after the resurrection, the road to Emmaus. You remember Jesus catches up with a couple of disciples who are walking to a city named Emmaus. And he says, he just kind of interrupts them and says, Hey, you know, what's this conversation you're having among yourselves? And one of them says, and one of them says, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem and you don't know the things that are happening that have gone on here? Then one then one says, But we had hoped that he was the one who would redeem. Israel. That's what they were hoping. Redeem Israel from what? Save Israel from Roman oppression. That's what they wanted. They weren't looking for the Lamb of God. They weren't looking for the Messiah to take care of their sin. They were looking for a Messiah who was going to take care of the consequences of their sin, which was oppression. And Jesus says, oh foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. And beginning with Moses, And all the prophets, all of the Old Testament scripture, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It all points to the person of Jesus Christ. In verse 42 of our passage, Jesus says to Israel, Would that you, even you, had known on this day, this day, the very day that he enters, the things that make for peace. God's given a specific timeline for the annual celebration of the Passover. In addition, God's given the very year and the very day that the anointed prince, as referenced in Daniel 9, would be cut off, that is crucified, as revealed through Gabriel to Daniel. And Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, perhaps, is it, well, for surely, is no ordinary year. It's no ordinary week. It's no ordinary day. This day begins the annual celebration of the Passover, and no doubt the busiest time of the year in Jerusalem. And when I think of the, I'm a Gentile, right? So when I think of the Passover, I think of the Passover meal, right? That's what I'm most familiar with. And that's what I think of as the Passover meal. But the Passover celebrate is a celebration that God had given to the nation Israel that starts on the tenth of the first month of the first month that He had given. It starts on the tenth, where they select the lamb, and then it goes all the way to the fourteenth, where the lamb is sacrificed. And that's immediately followed by a seven-day feast known as the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. They're just right there, and that starts on the fifteenth. So you got the tenth. Where the lamb is selected, you got the 14th where the, where the lamb is slain, and then right immediately after is the 15th, another seven-day feast of un, unleavened bread. And so Christ's entry into Jerusalem is the beginning of this annual Passover celebration. It's a Passover celebration they've been celebrating for hundreds of years since, since they were freed uh, from Egypt. So, so turn now in your Bibles... Just to familiarize you with this, turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. 
Now, you're all very familiar with um, this passage. Um, and just to bring you up to speed, if, if you're not, we all, we all know that God called, out, called a man named Abraham. And he told Abraham, this goes back into Genesis, he said, the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your, and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great, great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. Now hear this. This is, this is the promise. This is the covenant God makes with Abraham. And in you all, circle that, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So you know the story. Abraham has two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Isaac has two sons, Esau and Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. And you know the story. Um, Joseph is sold into slavery, goes to Egypt, and God uses Joseph, is raised up to second in command, and God uses Joseph to bring his family into Egypt to rescue them and save them from a famine. And so that happens. But while they're there, they become slaves. Slaves to Egypt. And God raises up a deliverer for them um, named Moses. And God, and God rescues his people from the hand of Pharaoh. And you know that battle. It's the battle of the gods, right? It's the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob against all the gods of Egypt. And so you're familiar with the ten plagues. You know the ten plagues. And the last plague, which is the Passover. In Exodus 9, I hope you're still turned. If you're, if you're, if you're still in Exodus 12, good. You're at the right place. Um, in Exodus 9... Um, the Lord says to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh. Say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me for this time. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on all your servants and your people. So that, I'm always circling so that when I read through scriptures, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence. And you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, for this purpose, I, I have raised you up to show my power so that, there's another so that, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Do you see the passion of God? It's proclaiming his magnificence to all the earth. And he uses the nation of Israel to do that. And so we have the Passover. So, Let's read um, um, the first part of Exodus chapter 12, just to get familiar with, uh, I, I can tell you these things, I'd rather you read them so you can go back and look at them yourself. Exodus 12, um, verse 1, and remember the Passover instructions that we're going to read all point to the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ, and that's the goal here. Exodus chapter 12, verses 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day, okay, circle that, on the tenth day of this month, every man, that is, this isn't optional, every man, every head of household shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make for your count for the lamb. 
The lamb shall be without blemish. Circle that. The lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Got it? The 10th day it starts. They select the lamb, the 14th it's sacrificed. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted. Its head and its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. Now, if you want to make a little note there in Leviticus 23, it's noted that that first day of this unleavened week, this unleavened, this feast of the unleavened bread is on the 15th. So the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses, for if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day, on the first day, you shall hold a holy assembly. And on the seventh day, a holy assembly. Okay, that week, there's a holy assembly on the first day and on the seventh. But, but um, no work shall be done on those days. Those are annual Sabbaths. Okay, we're familiar with the weekly Sabbath. These are annual Sabbaths associated with this Feast of the Unleavened Bread. But what, ev- but what everyone need, um, no work shall be done on those days, but what, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone must be prepared by you, and you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread. For on this very day I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, that's when they started eating, the, when they prepared the unleavened and the Passover meal, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leaven, that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he's a sojourner or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places you shall eat unleavened bread. All right, so you're following, you're following with me now? It's more than, Passover is more than just a meal. It's celebrated over a period of time. It starts on the 10th um, when the Passover lamb is selected. The 14th, the Passover lamb is sacrificed. And then the blood was put on the doorpost. And then on the 15th starts the celebration, right? They're freed. They're freed. This is when, you know, when you think of them walking out of Egypt, this is the 15th day of that month. They're freed. 
from slavery to Egypt. Um, let me say this. I mentioned that the, I mentioned that that first day of the unleavened bread, which which was the fifteenth, and then the twenty-first, God's instruction was that those were to be holy. They they were those were to be Sabbath days for them as well. No work was to be done other than what was um, prepared um, to eat. So I, I say this, and um, because there's this confusion, a little bit of confusion, when we think about um, as we as we move on into um, the next text when we think about Good Friday. If, you, if you're a kid and you're going, okay, Friday, he's crucified on Friday. Um, that's Friday night, Saturday night, he's resurrected on Sunday. I got two nights in that. And Jesus said in, in, in Matthew 21, he said, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the, of the huge fish, so the Son of Man shall be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so we get this, confused when we're young because we look at tradition and we elevate tradition um, as if it's literally the word of God and it's not. I'm, I'm, traditions are fine, but if you want to ask me how many days and nights Jesus was in the, in the grave, I will tell you three days and three nights. There's two reasons I have for that, that I would say that. One is the same man who said three days and three nights is the same God who separated the light from darkness. Amen? Amen? And what did he call the light? Day, Genesis 1. And what did he call the night? The darkness. Night. I think he knew. I think he knew. Three days and three nights. He's the one that separated the light from the darkness. And he called the light day and he called the darkness night. He's also... The same Christ, the same man, who didn't really elevate traditions much over the Word of God. And so there's a lot of linguistic gymnastics that take place trying to fit three nights into two nights. And it, I'll just say this for me, it doesn't work for me. My dad used to tell a story about going to Dunkin' Donuts and ordering, he used to, he and my mom would share coffee. He'd order a large cup of coffee, and he also wanted a small cup, empty cup. Do you remember that? Some of you, some of you remember that story? He would always tell. It was, a, it was a hilarious story. He would tell that story. The lady misunderstood him because he said, "I want a large cup of coffee and a small cup." She thought he said "and a small cup," right? This is hard to tell the difference. And he kept. And they had this dialogue that went on. And finally, at the end of the dialogue, and I don't know if this was over a drive-through speaker or what, she said. Sir, I cannot get a large cup of coffee in a small cup. And, and he tells that story. I'm one of those people. I can't get three nights into two. So I can't, I can't make that work. Think about this. As, in, in looking, at looking at Exodus 12, think about this. So Christ's triumphal entry is on the 10th. Is on the 10th. He's crucified on the 14th. When all, I mean, think of Jerusalem. It's just... I mean, there's just so much going on in Jerusalem. It's, I mean, Disney World wouldn't even compare to what just everybody's bringing their lambs. All this is going on. All the lambs are being sacrificed. Think about this when you think about the, the spotless lamb of God. Jesus is tried by Pilate. Between the 10th and the 14th, he's tried by Pilate. He's tried and found not guilty. He's tried by Herod and found not guilty. And he's tried by the Sanhedrin, and they can't make anything stick. He is the spotless lamb of God. And then on the 14th, when he's crucified, as we've sung, 
the veil was torn in two. So the main point, the main point as we look at Exodus is that all of all of Scripture and, in, in, and everything, and the path, very Passover points to this very entry of Christ. As Christ approaches Jerusalem, he sends two disciples to receive a colt. And he will sit, um, that he will sit upon as he enters Jerusalem. And it happens just as he said. Observation number two. Here's observation number two. The rest, these next observations are going to go really quickly. Observation number two. Jesus validates his qualification as a prophet by making a short-term prophecy that is fulfilled just as he told them. In the Old Testament, a prophet had to be 100% correct or he was stoned. That was it. Death was the consequence of any inaccuracy in a prophecy. And that's what validated a prophet and his ability to make a prophecy. Jesus gives a short-term prophecy. Then at the end of our passage, later, when he cries out, when he weeps over Jerusalem, he makes a prophecy, a longer-term prophecy about her destruction. Here's a short-term prophecy about what the disciples will find as they go and look. And, and, and Luke tells us, and, and those who were sent found it just as he had told them. Observation number three in verses 35 and 36. The manner in which Christ enters the city of Jerusalem is in itself a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. All right? So the manner in which Christ enters into the city of Jerusalem itself is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Zechariah 9.9. Write that down. Zechariah 9.9. Go back and look later at Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Our faith is in the person of God to keep the promises of God by the power of God, right? Those are the three P's we talk about when we're talking about, the God, about faith, when we talk about that with the young people. We're talking about the person of God, the promises of God and the power of God. The gospel writers continually to highlight the words and actions of Christ as a fulfillment of prophecies. And this, and this prophecy, this small prophecy, is just another one of the many prophecies that Jesus fulfills. God is trustworthy. God can be trusted because he is a promise keeper. Observation number four from verses 37 and 38. As Christ enters the city of Jerusalem... The crowds recite the words of the psalmist in Psalm 118. But they missed the purpose for which he came. As, a, as, a, as Christ enters the city of Jerusalem, the crowd recites the words of the psalmist in Psalm 118. But they missed the purpose for which he had come. Luke says, The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice, for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Psalm 118 would have been one of the psalms that they would have traditionally sung during that Passover week. And so turn in your Bibles to Psalm 118. I hope you go back and look at this this week. Psalm 118, I'm, I'm, I'm going to pick up in verse 19 just because of the um, lack of time that we have. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate 
of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal, sac- the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. This is where they missed it. They missed the need for the sacrifice of Christ. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. I will give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Amen? Amen. The people of Israel were willing to embrace Jesus as their Messiah, as long as he conformed to their expectations that the Messiah would do for them. And that is free them from Roman oppression. You know, Israel was suffering the consequences of their sin, their disobedience. Something they'd experienced over and over again, right? You read through all of the Old Testament, and you see that repeated, repeated. Israel falls, she's disobedient. God graciously pulls her from a pit. And I mean, the book of Judges alone, that cycle that you see in the Judges of Israel, constantly disobeying God. God sends a prophet. God rescues them. God restores them. Then they sin again. That pro- that. Judges, the book of Judges alone should, in your mind, just bring to the fact that they continually rejected their Messiah. They wanted a Messiah who would free them. And hear me on this: who would free? And because we're like this, I'm like this. They wanted a Messiah who would free them from the consequences of their sin without dealing with their sin. But there is no peace, and there is no kingdom without the cross. An atonement must be made for man's sin in order, to be, in order for there to be a restored relationship between God and man. Observation number five, the Pharisees, ever present since the baptism of John the Baptist, the Pharisees asked Jesus to rebuke his followers, and Jesus responded by saying, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out, because now is the time. This day. It's the, have you ever wondered? Have you ever wondered as, you're, as, as we were, have been going through the book of Luke and you read, let's just say the, the cleansing of the leper in Luke 4. Jesus cleanses the leper and he charges him, don't tell anyone. Don't, don't tell anyone. Keep it quiet. Go and show yourself to the priest and keep that. Or, or even the first miracle, right? Um, we turn the water into wine. He says, you know, is this the, um, is, you know, he's talking to his mom. Is this the time? Um, the feeding of the 5,000. The feeding of the 5,000 in John, in the Gospel of John, John, John tells us this in John 6. He says, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. You ever wondered why Jesus was always slipping away or why he would say in the early part of his ministry, say, you know, kind of keep it quiet. I mean, go and do this and do this. Well, that's the reason. That wasn't the time. This is the time, this year, of this month, of this day, was the time for this spotless Lamb of God to be presented um, to Israel. 
The religious leaders of Israel rejected Jesus as their Messiah because he didn't validate their self-righteous means of meriting favor with God. The Pharisees, they thought they could restore God's blessings and favor for Israel. God bless them. I mean, they, they were sincere, right? They thought, well, if we can just get back to the Bible, so to speak, if we can just get back and obey, if we can just obey. We can't obey. The problem is in the heart. All the Old Testament ever did was con, con, condemn them. This is what a holy God is. Be holy like I'm holy. And they couldn't. And the Pharisees were like, they were genuine. They're like, if we just get back to obeying the law, then we'll find favor with God. But the problem was in the heart. It's the sin that had to be dealt with. So it couldn't come on their terms. Those were their terms, but it wasn't going to happen that way. And the only terms for peace are those that are dictated by God. And there is no reconciliation between God and man except through the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God. Again, there is no peace without the cross. Observation number six. We've got number six and number seven, and then we're going to application. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem and over Jerusalem's rejection of her Messiah. Let me say that again. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem's, Jerusalem's rejection of her Messiah. All the scripture pointed to this time and to this place, starting from the death of the very first animal that God killed to clothe Adam and Eve for their, and to cover their sin, all the way through every Passover, hundreds of years that Israel had been celebrating. All of that was pointing to this time and this place, but Israel missed it. They had selective hearing. They wanted to be rescued from Rome, and that was it. Observation number seven. And I'm going to tie this in with observation number six too because some of the history from Josephus is very interesting. But observation number seven, verses 43 and 44. Jesus prophesies the judgment of God upon Jerusalem because rejecting God's only provision for sin has no other remedy. Rejecting God's only provision for sin has no other remedy. There are consequences to, reject, to the rejection of God's only provision for sin. And that is the atoning work of Christ on the cross. And that's death and destruction. Those are the consequences. Death and destruction. Josephus, who was a Jewish um, historian, tells us this. Listen to this. You know, the preach team, when I come up here, these are guys that we, we as we're studying, we learn so much that we've got to cram it into just a few minutes. And so, it's, and so it's very difficult to do. But one little thing that stuck out to me. Do you know this? That was, and you may know this. It was on the Passover of 70 AD that Titus, the Roman general, began his siege of Jerusalem. It was on the Passover. So here is Jesus weeping over Jerusalem as he enters on the Passover week to celebrate it. And he weeps and he looks and he sees what God has ordained in 40 years down the quarter of time, this massive destruction, this obliteration of Jerusalem and the temple. It was on August, and this is, these are, this is Josephus saying this, this is historian saying this, it was on August 10 of 70 AD. So he enters, on, he, enters, he enters 
in, in, on the Sabbath. So that would have been for us, that would have been like April, May, springtime was their first month, okay, of Nisan. So um, Titus would have come in during that Passover of that year of 70 AD. It was, and it was in August of 70 AD that a Roman soldier threw a burning torch into the Holy of Holies, setting the great tapestry on fire, and the Romans began looting the temple and all of its treasures. After the fires extinguished, Josephus says, all the stones were pried apart, looking for melted gold. The Romans leveled the entire temple mount down to the foundation. They didn't have to go down into the foundation. The gold didn't go any further than the ground, right? But they didn't leave a stone unturned where that gold would have been. And all of Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed. Josephus says that 1.1 million Jews were killed during that time. And he says this, this is interesting, Josephus wrote that this was no doubt God's judgment. Now Josephus, I don't know that he was a believer. He was just, he was a Jewish historian, but he says this, he says that no doubt, this was, this was no doubt, he says, a judgment of God because the Roman soldiers were ordered not to harm the temple itself. But in the fog and violence of war, it was completely destroyed. And so Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. And then he says, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And this was the time. I'm out of time, but quickly, some application. Can we do that? Who is Jesus, right? Who is this? Is what Matthew records. He said, who is this that's entering into Jerusalem? Is he a genie in a bottle who I can call upon when I need help with my troubled finances or my poor health or my broken relationships? Is he the, is he the one that can rescue us from the brokenness of this world and the consequences of our sin without really freeing us from slavery? The sin. Remember the, remember the story of the ten lepers that we went through in chapter 17? Ten lepers. How many came back? One. Only one leopard came back. He returned to Jesus, I would say, because it was the person of Jesus that was more important to him than just the healing. It was that relationship. You know, we live today the name it and claim it false gospel, right? Word of faith. Just have enough faith. All you need is enough faith that you can eliminate all the brokenness that you're experiencing in your life. Well, that doesn't work. That can't happen. That's not the Jesus who, we, who is presented to us on this day. You know, sometimes when I think about myself personally, I think about my own prayer life. You know, if my, if my prayer life is only, oh God, heal me of this, do this, and do that, and I'm guilty of that. Am I the only one? Then I'm like then it's like I think Jesus, Jesus is a genie in a bottle that's just going to take care of the brokenness in my life. And yet we live in a broken world because of sin. Just because of sin. But, and then there's my sin, right? And there's consequences for that. He is not a genie in a, bottle, in a bottle. One of them, Luke says, one of them, when he saw that he was healed, came back praising God, praising God in a loud voice, didn't keep it to himself, and he threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. Or maybe, maybe 
He's a Jesus who makes good people better. And I, I fear for the culture that we live in today because I think our churches are filled with people who believe this. Another false gospel. Maybe he's a, maybe he's a Jesus who just makes people better. Do I bring my self-righteous goodness to the table and I look for Jesus to make me better? The rich young ruler learned that in Luke 18. You know, man, I just, I, just, I just need a little bit of Jesus to get me over the finish line and make me acceptable to God. You know, do, you, do I really think that my morality, based upon how I treat my neighbor, will somehow outweigh my, the open rebellion in my heart against God? Jesus always cuts to the heart of the matter. Remember what he told the rich young ruler? The rich young ruler was like, well, I've kept this, I've kept this, I've done this, I've done this. What else do I need to do? Can you just get me over the finish line, Jesus? When Jesus heard him say this, he said, Oh, you still lack one thing. Sell everything that you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Jesus exposes the sin of idolatry in his heart. Jesus is not the one who makes good people better. Amen? He's the one who makes God-haters and self-lovers and self -lovers like you and like me sons of the living God the atoning work of Jesus on the cross. Maybe, maybe, maybe Jesus, third one, third application, maybe he's, maybe he's a Jesus who just upsets my own sense of self-righteousness. This is the Pharisees, right? The Pharisees were genuine. Remember that. Maybe he's, maybe he's the Jesus who upsets my sense of self-righteousness. Do I set myself up as a standard of righteousness? One that I believe makes me acceptable to God, and then I kind of expect others to follow that same standard of righteousness? Well, we learned this in the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisees, didn't we? God, I thank you that I am not like others, the Pharisees said in that parable. Do I live by my own definition of holiness in complete disregard for the holiness of God? Or do I recognize that it's only the righteousness, only the righteousness of Jesus Christ is acceptable to a holy God? Let me close on this. Do you recognize, do I recognize that there is no peace without the cross? A cross of forgiveness and reconciliation that I must return to every day, and every hour. Do I refuse to forgive another who has sinned against me? Do I claim to be reconciled to God, to the blood of Jesus Christ, but I'm not willing to be reconciled to my brother, my sister, my husband, my wife, another person? As a follower of Jesus Christ, let me ask you this. What offense can another person commit against you that's unforgivable? Or am I willing to ask for am I, am, am I willing to ask for forgiveness when I'm a, when I when I've sinned against another person? Am I willing to do that? Am I willing to ask for forgiveness when I've sinned against another person? Or does my pride prefer to live with the consequences of that sin rather than to deal with the sin in my heart? Did you hear me on that? Did you hear me on that? Am I willing to ask for forgiveness when I've sinned against another person? Or does my pride prefer that I just live with the consequences of that sin rather than deal with the sin in my heart? The gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel of forgiveness 
and reconciliation. God reconciling man to himself through the atoning work of Christ on the cross. Jesus says to Israel, would that you had known on this day the things that make for peace. You see, there is no peace without the cross. And that's why Jesus came on that day to go to the cross. Who is Jesus? The angel tells Mary he will save his people from their sins. John the Baptist, behold, there are some that got it. John got it. John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God who comes to free us from Rome. (laughs) No. Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. If you are an unbeliever, if you are here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, you are not trusting in the work of Christ on the cross as your only remedy, only remedy for sin, then you only have one of two options. You can either pay for that sin yourself through eternal separation from God and eternal death, or you can accept the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross on your behalf. And my invitation to you is to be as the tax collector in Christ's parable. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's it. That's it. If we're a believer, as believers, we experience the brokenness of this world in which we live. And the brokenness associated with our own sin. And so each day, each day and every hour, we should find ourselves coming back to the foot of the cross. Is Christ not as glorious to you every day as he was when you first met him? He should be even more so, right? Now we know what he has done all the more. And you know what that should do? That should well up inside of us an incredible joy that says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfastness endures forever.